This episode is hosted by Lee Atchison. Lee Atchison is a software architect, author, and thought leader on cloud computing and application modernization. His most recent book, Architecting for Scale, is an essential resource for technical teams looking to maintain high availability and manage risk in their cloud environments. Lee is the host of his podcast, Modern Digital Business, an engaging and informative podcast produced for people looking to build and grow their digital business with the help of modern applications and processes developed for today's fast-moving business environment. Subscribe at mdb.fm and follow Lee at leeatchison.com. Observability is a critical aspect of modern digital applications. You can't operate an application at scale that satisfies your customer needs without understanding how the application is currently performing. Whether it's understanding the current operating needs of the application, adjusting resource usage, detecting issues before they become serious, or solving an ongoing technical issue as it's going on. Application observability is a critical aspect for all modern applications. Thundra is a performance monitoring company that specializes in application performance monitoring infrastructure monitoring, and most notably, serverless monitoring. Burke Mola Mostafalu is the CEO of Thundra, and he's my guest today. Burke, welcome to Software Engineering Daily, and I have to start out by apologizing for completely mangling your last name. So why don't you tell everyone how it should be pronounced? <laughs> sure, it's uh, Mola Mustafa Olu. It's a handful combination of three words, but uh, you know I appreciate you trying. Mola must follow. Yes, that's right. Not bad. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we'll, we'll stake with that. I won't try it again, just in case I get it wrong. Wrong, Sounds even good. worse than I did the first time. I apologize for that. APM. So th- there's lots of companies today in the uh, in the application performance monitoring space. You know, there's the data dogs and Dyna traces, which are the biggies according to Gartner's Magic Quadrant. But there's also the New Relics, the Splunk, the App Dynamics, and other companies like that. What makes your APM offering so unique? Yeah, that's a very good place to start. So APM is, in a sense, a generic way to approach this monitoring challenge that you know we need to monitor, as you said, the applications to know what they are going on. At Tundra, the origin is the serverless, as you also mentioned. And that came out, uh, the Tundra team, we were in Austin in my previous startup where it was reliability was a very, very high importance for us. And uh, therefore, observability monitoring was important. And we were moving our some of our infrastructure to the serverless environment very early. And we couldn't find any tools to do get visibility into what's going on in that environment to the code that we were deploying there. So the team proposed that we develop something. And we were internally just developing for our own need, and uh, Opsini was uh, acquired in 2018 at Lassian, and uh, prior to that acquisition, we agreed to spin off the product as a separate company. Tundra, that's how it came about, and the team moved on to Tundra to, to build further build the basic product for the market. So it was from the beginning monitoring solution for the specific use case. And in this case, the use case was serverless. Uh, serverless is a very different environment. You don't have, you know, servers to put agents on in, in a way. Uh, it's very lightweight. You know, you're talking about milliseconds of execution time. So it needs to be very rapid. And also 
at the time at least, uh, a lot of the solutions uh, had split different aspects of monitoring. You know, traces in one place, you had the tracing solution. There's a logging solution where you got the logs and the metric kind of uh, solutions were often very different products. And it was very hard for the engineers to switch between these products depending on what they needed. So we started with those two principles. One, it needs to be all automated, you know, automated instrumentation of the code in the application level, as opposed to like uh, tagging manually, try to follow things, which is which was often the case in, in distributed tracing. It needs to be lightweight and it needs to work in the cloud, um, you know, AWS cloud and so on, where serverless was most uh, common than what we were using at the time. So we started from those principles. And and the other one was that it needed to have all aspects of observability in one place, traces, logs, metrics, that you could see everything in context of each other without switching between tools. So those were the the guidelines we had uh, sort of started with and built it. At the time when we built it, there was almost no product that did all these things in one place. That actually is a unique way to look at it where you don't want to require custom instrumentation within the application. I think that is one of the things that definitely makes you unique from some of the other major vendors. But that's is that easier in the serverless world than it is in the you know the monolith world? Because it's essentially it's impossible in the, in the monolith world to go completely pegless, right? Without having some sort of instrumentation. But is that yeah. easier in the serverless world or is it are there other challenges there? I mean there were some things that made it easier, but there are definitely challenges. Like it needs to be really lightweight. Like if you put a lot of over overhead to it, your costs would double because you know you're taking more time and like it's you're paying for the compute time and how much memory you're using. So it needed to be like existing agents putting into the servers just didn't work. You know, some customers were trying that. That was so that making it very lightweight was made it harder. We focused on the the AWS cloud initially, and it made it a little easier because it was well-defined kind of services that we could look into. But without tagging, doing distributed tracing was very difficult. And I think there are maybe a couple products in the market still that can do that without manual tagging of the the stuff. Like when you put something to a queue and take it back from queue or, you know, put Kinesis and take it out, they typically lose the, the transaction. Tundra was from the beginning able to stitch those to automatically and give you a full view of the transaction. I think that's probably what we uh, spend the most time getting it right but it, because of it was for a specific environment, the cloud services and so on, we were able to do that as we focused on it. In time, I think the infrastructure providers like AWS cloud providers will provide more capabilities to help the vendors to do this. But in the past, up until now, uh, it was kind of a left to the as an exercise to the vendor. And I think we did a really good job at, at that. Yeah, I know that was always a challenge. So. Full disclosure to everyone, I came from New Relic. I was there for a number of years. But when we tried to do this in New Relic, we absolutely took the approach of instrumenting the code, ran into all the issues you were talking about. And one of the things I always thought that we should have done more of, and it sounds like maybe this is the approach that you took, is to leverage the data that AWS is generating for you. And they've obviously done more of that as time's gone on, but... 
that was something I always thought was an important aspect of an, a complete monitoring solution is to integrate in the CloudWatch characteristics that were built into na- native into AWS in a much fuller manner. Is yeah. that how you're able to do it or is there more to it? There's obviously more to it than that. There was more to it. Yeah. So I think going forward, I believe there will be more in, in CloudWatch that will help with this to all vendors and the customers doing this. But, you know, Sarkhan is our CTO and the brains behind this. Like he's kind of a, a people that knows the internals of all these things quite well in the cloud as well as inside the application runtimes. And uh, by combining uh, stitching in the back end with the data that we collected, like techniques there as well as smarter agents you know fairly sophisticated ways we were able to do it it certainly wasn't easy and it's like i said it's one of the more innovative guys there and having very deep knowledge of this uh, in terms of the systems he was able to do it i can't say that i fully understand everything he did (laughs) to make it work but he did a great job at uh, getting it done got it got it so one of your core values is as much Stitching together of the transactions that is is possible without deep integration into custom integration into the application. Yeah, one of one of the things of the principles of serverless is to take load off of the developers, right? Like you don't manage the infrastructure and so on. And if you just turn around when you're trying to do observability, and now you have to instrument your code manually, it just is not in sync with the philosophy of the serverless in my opinion we are trying to take load off of the developers plate like we are asking a lot from the developers now as you know they are you know you have to, they have to think about everything now you know how to run it how to secure it and so on so we really thought we can't ask anything manually like the, when you deploy this it should work we weren't sure that we could do in that level but the team kept at it and, and eventually we, we we found enough information how to stitch the code we use you know elasticsearch in the back end and being able to like essentially the data came as separate parts but we were able to find sufficient data to be able to connect the different traces that there are related at the back end with some processing and agents coll- uh, provided some of that data that uh, we col- uh, collected from the Lambda functions, executions, and so on. So the data is there, but it's just, you know, very obfuscated. So we were able to eventually stitch it together. So it's fully automated. But that was the driving sort of a principle. Like you can't, you know, people are trying to reduce the overhead observability and like uh, computing and so on by going to serverless. You can't turn around and ask them to do more work to do monitoring of that environment. So... And I think that is the right approach that there will be more and more as time goes by provided will make it easier by the cloud providers to, to do those things. And we're trying to close the gap in the meantime to, to make uh, provide a solution. So you've talked mostly about AWS so far, and I know that's where your start was. What, what about, you know, Google? What about Azure? Do you have offerings there or do you have plans for offerings there? And, and we can then have a conversation about hybrid cloud as well. But uh, love yeah, your thoughts there. Our solution initially, as I mentioned, was serverless. But later, we found that a lot of our customers were running hybrid. So, you know, it wasn't pure serverless. They were running containers, VMs in some cases. So we did extend the solution, the APM solution, to support the containers and VMs as well. 
even though it's still the majority of the customers that come to use Tundra, they come because they have a significant serverless, but it's not just serverless they have. But because we approach this from an application level, instrumenting the, the runtimes, it does work in Google and so on as well. But the number of customers we have in those environments is very, very small percentage, single digits. It's just, you know, the because I, you know, how we are known or where people are doing serverless more and so on, vast majority of the customers are in the AWS environment. What we're finding is there's a lot more customers too that are turning to, well, polycloud applications. You know, these are, you know, applications that are, you know, in multiple cloud providers, not as a repetition, but using unique capabilities of each. So you might have your AI capabilities in one cloud provider, yeah. your data storage in another, et cetera, et cetera. So that means, you know, naturally means you have interactions that go back and forth between the cloud providers. How do you deal or can you deal with, or is there, is this a hard issue to solve with dealing with tracing across cloud providers like that? It will be an interesting challenge. We haven't done much of that. Uh, just simply, we, we didn't have customers uh, demanding that yet. They do have applications in multiple clouds, but not a lot yet in between them. And when there are, as long as it's in the you know web HTTP level and so on, uh, we do trace. Like It doesn't matter which cloud they are on. So you're able to see the trace regardless of where they are. But we haven't had anything that required us to do specific things for this. Maybe the customers are doing it. I just haven't noticed that because there is no inherent limitation preventing that. I just don't have first-hand knowledge of it. Got it. And it's not something you've had to specifically design for. It That's right. works with what you're currently doing. Yep. Yeah, it works in hybrid environments. There is no limitation that it wouldn't work. But again, the vast majority of the customers we have typically come to us because the generic solutions, you know, they're, they're lacking in some ways, right? Like the, there are other solutions that do those things. And the, if they are coming to a startup that is not as well known as a Neuralink and Datadog, they typically are looking for something more. And I think in the, in the AWS serverless world, we have that much more. In the other spaces, maybe we are similar in it so that they're not gravitating to us. But uh, if you are doing serverless and you want full visibility, observability for that environment, it is, I think, the the best in the market. So that's the the customers that who have that need. You know, they run critical workloads and so on. That's those are the ones they typically come to us because just not enough to do basic monitoring of serverless environments with other tools that you might get done. What about a hybrid, uh, you know, with customers with cloud and on-premise components of their application? Do you see that much? Or is, again, is it mostly people who come to you, they're mostly focused on the cloud aspects of the of the monitoring? I mean, there are some, but mostly cloud is one. Like, we haven't seen a lot of our customers are, I would say, startups and mid-market, not the enterprise customers. They seem to have more more of that, you know, like on-prem slash cloud. Uh, our customers are, even in the, say, more traditional companies, it, they are the teams that are adapting more, like sort of a cutting-edge stuff. You know, they're doing new greenfield applications in the cloud using serverless and adapting new tool sets for it and, and come to use uh, our products versus, you know, replacing maybe the 
traditional tools, APM tools that they have for their hybrid stuff uh, like that may come later. But so far, it's been more the the new stuff that they want to have solution for is why, why they acquired our products. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. You know, the, there's a big focus nowadays on cloud native applications, you know, which is yep. much more than just, you know, built for the cloud. It's, you know, it's microservice applications, it's containers, it's Kubernetes, et cetera. Serverless is kind of uh, orthogonal to that, but very much related to that. But I do know there is a, you know, a, I don't know if it, the word debate is the right answer or not, but there's a, a viewpoint of the value of containerized microservices versus serverless. And yeah, which, you know, from an architectural standpoint, the pros and cons of each and how they all work together. Applications really, truly, most applications, cloud native applications end up with some combination of both of them. And so, monitoring across containerized applications, uh, containerized services, I should say, and serverless services becomes critical. And so your tracing works across that environment and you make all that work correctly. That's right. uh, That's that's great. So what do you find your customers focusing on more and more? Do you see them? So I try and teach my customers that serverless is great for certain types of problem sets. And everything else, container-based microservices, is the preferred architecture. And and I do know some customers, though, who say, nope, serverless is everything. Put everything in the serverless. <laughs> and others who say, no, 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 can't use serverless at all. Don't you know, go go away from that. You know, like I say, what I focus on is use serverless for the things it's good for, and that's it. What do you find from your customers? Are there people who are all in on serverless and that's it? Or are they truly trying to find the balance between the two? If they're starting new, we have a lot of customers that went all in on serverless. They use some containers, but that's the exception for them. Like if there is a reason for whatever reason that they it's better for it, then they go that. The traditional companies, you know, more like the established companies, let's say, typically do the other way around and they have more containerized applications and use uh, serverless more of an exception. I think the the primary reason has been that the serverless had been lacking some technologies that uh, makes it easy to lift and shift existing applications. Like the containers made it very easy. It's not a a huge leap to go from, you know, running in a physical server or a VM on your uh, on-prem to like uh, moving to a container. It's been a significant change if you wanted to move that to the serverless environment, sometimes the savings are worth it. Often it's not. So that's why like, I think we've seen a lot more move by the customers to the containerized environment to that approach. But if you're building something new, operational advantages of serverless is significant, but it still requires more of a change in how people develop applications, how they run operations, and so on. It's not, you know, container-based stuff is more incremental change, I would say, to, you know, the way that people do things. Serverless demands more of a change, and tooling has not been ready in all those areas to accommodate that. In a way, we are trying to fill some of those gaps, like the in addition to our APM product, we uh, experimented a lot about the debugging in serverless environments. Like we had built a serverless debugger product. Uh, initially, it was part of the 
APM suite that we now split it as a separate product that you can get for debugging serverless applications in, in production, like the you know, put uh, breakpoints like you would do in a, a regular application and inspect and so on. So like the being able to debug those things. So that's another you know, Tundra product. We are also working on development product where you can develop the Lambda in your laptop, or in your machine, in your IDE, but run the rest of the environment on the cloud. So you don't have to simulate everything in your laptop or you don't have to deploy every time you make a change and so on and deploy to the server, which is another, I think, barrier in adoption of the serverless because it, you, know, you couldn't just use your IDE you know, debug on your ID and do all the things that you do and you have to move to a different environment, which is not, I think it's a little asking too much. Our development solution that, you know, we open sourced and building it to make it available as SaaS as well, uh, will address that. Like So that, uh, you know, the, just making it a little bit easier. So in time, again, I think the serverless will provide more of the functionality the customers need to lift and shift applications to serverless without changing the entire way they work. But I don't think it's there yet. And as a, you know, as a result, I think the, a lot of them are choosing the containerized environments to run their workloads. Yeah, yeah. That's certainly something I hear a lot too, is tooling for serverless is, is getting better getting much better than what it was in the early days, but it's still got a long ways to go. Uh, one of the other things I specifically hear a lot about, and it sounds like you're in a good position to to deal with, is one of the downsides of serverless compared to you know a more traditional cloud-native application is performance predictability of serverless, is the, the delta in performance of a given function varies considerably more than it does in a containerized environment wondering first of all have you seen that and do you are you able to to help customers deal with those issues yeah i mean the area that we've seen that the most is what people refer to as the cold start especially for applications that don't have a lot of load or you know very varying loads and when you have to wait for a container to warm up like you get these massive delays so in you know in our own applications as well like we've run into this and especially in like java for example like the, you know it was significant we've done a lot to solve that inside tundra and outside like to keep uh, functions warm and and manage all that it got better in time and i know that aws is working on some significant improvements on that that is coming i think uh, you know in the next few months uh, which will again help but uh, so far i think the like when we were building some api based stuff the the other side expected an answer in 3 seconds and we couldn't guarantee that to lambda like we had to put a container there because it was just sometimes taking more than that and you know it was uh, and like you couldn't take your java application put into you know, container and stick it to serverless uh, and expect the performance. It could, uh, like, cold start would, uh, can be 10 seconds wasn't unheard of. Like, so it was a, like, that's where we saw the most of the problems. It got better in time. It's less of a problem in, you know, in some runtimes than the others. But still, I think something that uh, will need to be in much better shape for serverless to be a 
acceptable solution for more type of applications. I completely agree with that. And, you know, the, you know, we find that, you know, TP99 performance for a lot of applications to be very, very poor with serverless because of this cold start syndrome, you know, yeah. they, every once in a while, uh, you know, you lose some containers, they'll go away. You need to increase the number of background containers available. And it, it's not just a matter of it's of keeping individual serverless functions always performing. In other words, if you just leave it set for an hour and you come back, the first call is going to be very high. That It's not that simple. What, what often happens is, you know, there might be, you know, 20 instances of this function that have, are warmed up and, but you now for some short period of time need 22. And so two new instances have to start up. They have to warm, go through their, their cold startup process. And so randomly in the middle of, of an application, you get these very, very big spikes and those are tough problems to deal with. But one of the other things that I've seen customers have to deal with isn't the, you know, the TP99 cases much as the, the larger standard deviation. You know, in a containerized application, you can build a, you know, of course, it, it it all depends on the application and the domain space and all that stuff. But you can build very, very, very real-time functions that have very predictable performance with a very, very tiny standard deviation. But even those sorts of functions, when you move them to a serverless environment, you know, forgetting the warm, warm cold start issue, the standard deviation can still be a lot greater. Yes. Is that getting better too as time goes on? Are AWS dealing with those issues more and more? It is, but I think there is a like case of you don't know what's going on, and that's the, those are the parts of the uh, the system that we don't have a lot of visibility of why that happens, and also like in in case of cold start, uh, like you know we don't control like how many warm things are. Like we wanted those things uh, to be able to explicitly control you know, like let's create some and so on. So, but beyond that as well, like since it's uh, automated, I think in the container-based stuff that you have more control over where the time is spending and you become more deterministic. A lot of things happen magically in, in serverless world. And, but, you know, when it doesn't happen or doesn't happen the way that you expect, you have no recourse. Uh, so things that are sensitive to, uh, you know, latency or the how long it takes, just like you, I'm not, I'm kind of suggesting to stay away from the, you know, as the using the serverless the in those cases. Yeah. It's just uh, there needs to be more control and visibility to understand why those things happen and eliminate those deviations. They are there, but they are definitely better, significantly better than the early times. Uh, when we look at the performance metrics, we can see that whatever they are doing, it's working. It's just they need to do more of that. Yeah, in the very, very early days of serverless, I remember looking at some performance charts and it looked like white noise as far as the variability. <laughs> yeah. It was you know, like no predictability at all, but it is getting a lot better now. That's yep. that's certainly true. So let's go on with the idea of complexity a little bit more. You know, certainly the idea that serverless applications can be more complex than cloud native or than certainly than monolith from the standpoint of the infrastructure, you know, forgetting about the complexity of the code itself, but the infrastructure. And one of the places where you see that complexly show through is in the setup, uh, integration, deployment, pipeline process of getting the application running and upgrading and things like that. Now, not very many performance monitoring companies pay attention to the pipeline but you have. So can you talk a little bit about your uh, 
what you do from the performance pipeline standpoint or the deployment pipeline yeah, standpoint? Yeah, uh, CI pipeline. So it, it's actually, we kind of, you know, when we thought like, what, what is like, who is Tundra? Like the, we are really now uh, observability, but like this, our expertise in automated instrumentation and monitoring of complex solutions. So serverless was one specific example, like it was a different environment. It, it, it had different needs and constraints. So we did that. But another area is the CI pipeline. So the process of moving code from Git to, you know, to production, it used to be like you ran a command, it built it and it deployed it like it was fairly simple. Now you look at it and it's a monstrous application with lots of different moving parts you know, some off-the-shelf applications, some open-source solutions, SaaS products, and the pipeline kind of orchestrates that. It's a very sophisticated, uh, complex environment. And we had, uh, you know, we realized that, like, there was very little visibility into what happens in that environment. So, like, when things are slow, your build takes long, your tests are taking long, you didn't know exactly why. And applying just generic APM solutions, just like it didn't work for serverless, it didn't work in this environment either because it doesn't understand what a test is and the, you know, what the coverage report is and so on. So we thought like there, it is a similar problem that we can add some value. So we looked at that, you know, we applied our know-how and technology in, in terms of automated instrumentation, tracing and understanding of different type of data First, to provide visibility, so like you can tell like how long it took to run the pipeline, where you spend the time, if it failed, why it failed. So like it's typical, it fails, you run it again. It, it you know maybe it passes this time, that type of thing. Or, or only you know we talked to a ton of customers, and the, the only way they were debugging troubleshooting was logs. You know, so kind of how where before APM, where things were in 20 years ago, you know, 15 years ago, like you used a lot of log statements and so on. That's the only way you understood the behavior. That's where we found, uh, you know, the CI pipelines, like the the only course is like, if you're logging stuff, you kind of dig around and figure out where time is spent. So we decided that like, this is, you know, definitely not where things should be. And there wasn't anything in the market doing this. So we decided that like if we build something that is understands the CI pipelines, like, understand what a test is, you know, what, what you set up before the test and how long the test runs to set up and then to clean up afterwards and so on. And you trace the tests when things are okay. And then when fails, you can compare the failed test flow and the, with the run, you can much faster go to the you know, the root cause of why the test fails. And also, like, when, you know, PR comes in, you know what changed. Like, the PR tells you, well, these are the lines that changed. These are the new lines. So we can kind of look, okay, well, these are the things that changed. Are these new change things, are they covered by the tests? Or are is there stuff that is not covered in this PR? So based on that, you can have different flows in your, uh, you know, software uh, reliability and so on. So we looked at from a you know both like a resource utilization perspectives and the failures and performance trends of which tests are taking long, like where do you spend the time to like deeper, you know, are you doing the things that you expect to do? Like is your coverage there and so on. And we'll go deeper into 
getting deeper understanding of what happens in CI, CI pipelines uh, in time to so that you have a reliable pipeline chain to move the software to production and you can know when things are not right, like why they're not right and quickly address that. Sounds like there's a lot of fertile opportunities in that space in particular. There's a, certainly not a lot of people dealing with those issues right now. True. There are only a you know, couple vendors uh, even tackling that. Datadog is one. I think you know, we are doing it there's some, you know, working on it, but there isn't really, you know, it's a new area. And, you know, I've been in monitoring space for a, a long time. It was one of my first jobs and it just stuck around. You know, I worked in the customer side and eventually moved to the, the vendors to do this. And it reminded me really like application monitoring was like this, like we didn't know. So we, we would look the server utilizations and the logs in the servers and stuff, but we didn't really know what was happening in inside the applications before the, you know, loose started in CA with the Wileys and so on, like try to like uh, look into the applications and BMC patrols of the time and the CA and so on, and then much better with the new relic and so on. But like the, you know, when I looked at the CI list, like it was like the dark ages of application monitoring, like you didn't really know what was going on inside. I found parallels to it. Like, yes, you can, you don't really, it's very opaque. You don't even know what's happening inside. You look from outside, like it built, took this this much, you know, it takes, you know, we, we look at builds that are taking more than an hour, right? And does it need to take more than an hour or is it just, uh, you know, poorly organized? It's hard to say, like they don't have that information. So when they say, okay, we want to uh, reduce this, they have to go then manually put stuff to measure things and figure out like what can be paralyzed and so on. Or when like the, and this build time, it turns out has a very direct impact on how successful uh, an organization is. The longer the build times and the, the more frequently builds fail, the less the deployment frequency is, which is a, one of the four Dora metrics of like how in the maturity in the DevOps. So like the, you really need to be able to deploy faster. And if you have, you know, an hour build times, it's very difficult to do it, especially if the failure rate in those builds is high. Like the people are waiting, you know, we, our guys call the master wars, like they're waiting for the others to like push so that they can push their code and a lot of waiting around and, and fighting going on just to get to production when I saw that, like uh, the how much time is being wasted, de- like valuable developer time with this, like the optimizing that pipeline, making making sure that it you know takes short, and when there's a problem, whether it's performance or a failure, uh, you can understand why it is, and you don't just you know run the test again and hope to this time it, it passes, you know the flaky test so to speak. Those are not like. They have no place in the modern, I think, software development. So it's coming. We are coming from behind to this in, as a, a sector. So we thought like we can, uh, given our expertise in like instrumenting and monitoring complex environments, this is an area we can add value. So that that was kind of the second product that uh, team came up with. Uh, we call Foresight. So. Serverless environments, monitoring, serverless debugging, cloud APM, and CI CD 
performance monitoring. It's yep. quite a wide variety of, <laughs> of offerings that, that cover some very important and critical areas. But what's next for you? We have one more product that uh, we launched a month ago as an open source project called Sidekick. I am very excited about this one, particularly, I think, uh, because it's going sort of against the the current tide in the monitoring observability world. So because our technology, I feel like, uh, supports now collecting large amounts of data, it's cheaper you know, technology, like we can, you know, do ton, tons of this. We chose now as a, a industry, uh, collect everything, you know, instrument everything, collect all this data. So if there's terabytes, if not more of instrumented data, logs, traces, metrics, and then you can use, you know, big data methods to make sense of it, right? Like that's kind of where where we moved. And I'm maybe because I work with these times where things were more constrained, like you couldn't collect all the data, you had to do intelligent sampling, you had to do all kinds of things, like you couldn't put a lot of overhead into the servers that application is running and so on. I found this approach, like I get the appeal, like when you have everything and you go back, you can look at all the data and figure out what's going on. But I feel it's not feasible for all applications or workloads. Like it's for maybe the most critical applications, you can do that. But for a lot of applications, we were finding in serverless world as well, the cost of monitoring and observability can be as much, if not more, of the how much it costs to run the environment. It's just very hard to explain to the business, like why you're you know, paying $1,000 to run the application and, you know, $1,000 to, to monitor it. Like, it's just uh, because of the data that generates is so much more than the application data that the application itself generates. So we, you know, I was always like, you know, in a little skeptical to this, like, you know, put everything into these, you know, big data sources and then use tools to, you know, harvest them or like mine them and so on. The approach that we've sort of adapted from what we call live application debugging, essentially when you're building, developing an application, how do you you know find problems? Like you put breakpoints into the code, you know, you look at the stack and so on, like very deep in you know data on the what the application state is. So what if basically the you can do this in production? but only when there is some signal suggesting that there may be something wrong instead of doing it all the time. So I, you know, maybe not a great analogy, but like we don't do those uh, COVID tests that, you know, you stick into your nose all the way to your brain, like every hour, just in case, right? Like we do those tests when you have a symptom, then you do that and maybe the blood test and like much more uh, data because you have some kind of a signal that you may be sick. That's kind of a, how I look at the approach that we took a sidekick. Like you can monitor the application health, and if there is uh, anything, you know, the response time is slow, or there is an exception in, you know, in somewhere in the application, and so on. Then you can trigger very deep data collection, and then compare the data you collected with the time that when everything was normal. So, like this is kind of how we troubleshoot things. Like you know, what changed. And how is it different? You know, like, so this is what changed recent changes, you know, foresight through the integrations tells us, you know, this is what changed. These are the PRs, what parts of the code changed, what tests are, you know, impacted. 
but you know any system like a synthetic transaction stuff real user monitoring whatever that as they are monitoring from a customer's perspective user's perspective if there is something detected that like something seems off then they can trigger deep data collection and we compare that to after a deployment when everything was working we collected the data but this was the normal state this is the abnormal state you compare to find where the problem might be originating from. So you enable a deeper level of testing. Probably you do it right after you deploy, but also whenever yes, you notice a problem, exactly. then you have st- something that you can compare yep. it to. Every time something changes, you do change, that you automatically. Detect. Yeah. There's some you can do automatically. Some requires some help from the developers. Like basically developers can say, like if notice something like this, make sure you collect data in these disease points in the code. Like they can put those breakpoints, essentially what we call trace points into the code. And when there's a signal, we collect that data. But we also intuitively try to guess like where we should collect the data without the manual work as well. And I think we will get better at that. Like, the, you know, if this problem happens, I want to collect data in this file and that file, because those are the files that changed after the last deployment. So if something is amiss, it's more likely to be there. Let me collect some data type stuff. So we started rule-based and it's, uh, you know, again, no uh, magic machine learning or AI, yeah, at least not yet. So you can basically say if this kind of failure signal, then collect this type of data. We are building the APIs now so that it can be tr- triggered by any system, like any monitoring solution or testing solution, etc can say, like, collect this data and send it to me. So, like, you know, if you're using Splunk for your operational system and logging and it is a monitor detected the slowdown in API, you can trigger this data collection and we send it to Splunk. An advantage is that it can be directly linked to the, the alert. So, like, you don't have to mine, you know, gigabytes of data. You have, like, this is the, this was the base. This is what's, what is now, like, compared and figure out what it is. Right. It's a great idea. I think the risk, of course, is that you create a complexity in the triggers and the you know the conditions and when do you do for what the circumstance yeah. and yeah. you do in other circumstances. And so it's a prime candidate for, in the future, for an AI solution to help with some of that. But this is still a world's better than what we have right now, where, like you say, you either collect everything or you collect nothing. You, yeah. You, you, you can't manually collect the right things ahead of time. That's right. Unless you collect everything. That's why we also open source this, because I think as a method and approach or philosophy, I think it needs more thought and help and so on. Like we need it in our arsenal. Like I don't, sort of uh, subscribe to like this is the best way like throw everything else and like do it this way but i don't think the current approach is suitable for all applications and now with the you know economy is going where it is and the budgets becoming more under pressure i think you know i'm kind of concerned that we'll see a lot of pullbacks because the roi on investment in observability monitoring will be harder to justify because it's it's very expensive where in the boom times, you know, we didn't care as much, you know, just grow and make sure that things are reliable. Now I see, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, why am I paying this much? And like, what, what is it getting to me? So the, I think in the, as an industry, in our arsenal, we need this 
as an approach, like where you have simple monitoring of maybe, you know, user perspective, like the performance errors and stuff. And then that triggers when there's a symptom, just like, you know, when you're seem to be sick, then we do all the tests to figure out what's wrong. Like we, if that approach versus we're doing tests all the time and collecting all the data for everybody, like that's not sustainable, I think, for all workloads. Like a lot of workloads, it's overkill and it's too expensive, hard to justify the uh, the cost. So that's why, like I, you know, we decided to open source and then see where it goes with uh, different things that people might come up with it. So that's the, you know, the next thing that we're working it's on. It's be great to see what happens with this because I think that's a it's a great area and a great, like you say, I think we need a lot of research in that area and it's gonna be it's gonna be a great fertile area for some open source contribution. So I, I wish you luck with that. That's great. Thanks. Thanks. Exciting stuff. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. My guest today is Bricky Mola Mustafalu, who is the CEO of Thundra. Thundra is much easier to say than your name. <laughs> but uh, thank you very much. And thank you for being on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Lee. I appreciate it. It was fun.